Uh, There's a saying about education. Those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. And those who can't teach, teach teachers. I remember when I was doing my teacher training, it seemed like our education lecturers were the worst teachers we'd ever seen. They'd mumble, they were boring, they'd have no plan or structure or visual aids, no classroom interaction, but they were the ones who were supposed to be teaching us how to teach. Their message was, do as I say, but not as I do. But when it comes to the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and evangelist ever, it's different. He's someone who could do it and who can teach us how to do it as well. We need to be doing what he says, but also imitating what he does. He's someone who talks the talk about evangelism, but who also walks the walk. One of the interesting things when you study the New Testament, you've got the book of Acts that tells the story of what Paul does, written by Luke, a co-worker, and then you've got his letters that tell us what he says. And they were written at roughly the same time as he was doing his missionary work. And it's interesting to compare them. Neither refers to the other. And yet at lots of points they touch and interact. Today we're going to look at two of these sections. One from the letter of Colossians, chapter 4, where Paul teaches us. And then from Acts 17, where we see how he puts that teaching into practice. Well, let's begin with what he says. Acts, uh, sorry, Colossians, chapter 4, verse 2. He's coming to the end of a section of uh, practical instructions And uh, he writes this way, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. First thing to notice, point one, Paul is prayerfully dependent. The instruction is pray for yourselves. But don't forget to pray for me too, he says. Pray that God would open a door for our message. Yes, Paul's using words, but it's all about what God does. You see, when we're telling people about Jesus, it's not a sales pitch. It's not about us getting our words exactly right, leading someone seamlessly down the path so that they can't back out of the deal. That might be the people you talk to on the telephone trying to sell you something, but it's not the way it works with evangelism. Uh, We need to pray for God's help because he's the one who opens doors. He's the one who provides opportunities, who guides paths, who arranges circumstances, who gives us courage, who gives us words to speak, who softens hearts, who opens eyes, who grants faith. He's the one who's doing it. Now some people misunderstand that biblical truth and they say, well if it's all about God doing it, I can just sit back and do nothing. I can stay here in church where it's comfortable, never speak to anybody and God will just save those who he will save. That's not what Paul's saying, it's not what he's doing. He goes on to talk about, in the verses that follow, the areas in which he's responsible to do things. So to pray for God to work can't mean where to do nothing. In fact, the two are connected. It's because God is in charge of it all that we keep going at telling others. If it was just up to us, if it was just up to our words and our effectiveness, 
we just stop whenever things got hard or we were tired or people rejected us. We are motivated to do our part because God is doing his part. Notice how Paul describes it. Flip back a page to chapter 1 verse 29 of Colossians. Paul talks about all that he is doing. But look how he puts it. Colossians chapter 1 verse 29. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labour, struggling. Now that's all about what Paul's doing, isn't it? But look at how he finishes the idea. Struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Paul keeps working hard, doing all that he can because God is working through him. It's the fuel that energises him. It doesn't make him sit in a room and do nothing because, oh, God's just going to save people. That's not the way it works. Pray. That's the first thing. Second part of Paul's approach we see back in chapter 4, verse 4. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Clarity matters especially when you've got a message that saves lives. It's a wasted message if no one can hear you or understand you. Uh, Do you ever watch those beach rescue shows, Bondi Rescue or Gold Coast, whatever it is? (coughs) And you see the, the lifeguards trying to communicate the dangers of the beach to tourists who don't understand the signs or can't don't understand English. And these lifeguards are frustrated. People's lives are in danger and they can't communicate the message that they need to communicate. Signs need to be clear. Communication needs to be clear, especially when you've got a life-giving message. We need to make sure we communicate clearly. We need to make sure we understand our culture and use words and concepts that our culture, our friends can understand, they can relate to, concepts they can understand, in settings that they're comfortable with, that they are more likely to actually listen in. Will men listen to a talk about Jesus if they happen to be standing around a barbecue with a beer in their hand? If that's the case, let's do that. Uh, Will a man be more likely to open up and talk about important things if you and he are standing together doing some work, shoulder to shoulder? Offer to help someone if that's the case. Are parents looking for holiday activities for their kids? Let's run a kids club. Uh, If the families we know are watching and reading Harry Potter or Frozen or Magical Beasts or whatever it might be, let's use those ideas to get across our message. That's how Paul does it in Athens. He understands the culture he's in and he speaks a message in their language, in their categories. We'll look at that passage in a moment, but let's keep moving through Paul's advice here in Colossians. Third piece of advice, verse 5, be wise, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. It's about being thoughtful. Uh, Speak first, uh, sorry, don't speak first and then think. Uh, Think first, how will they respond if I say this or that? Uh, What are the advantages in me saying nothing in answer to this question but answering this question instead? 
Wisdom knows when to speak and when to listen. Wisdom knows which battles to fight and which ones to overlook. Wisdom asks what's behind that question that's being asked. What's the real issue? Listen, pray, think before you speak. That's wisdom. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Paul says, Paul, be opportunistic. Verse 5, make the most of every opportunity. That's part of wisdom as well. Be ready. Know what to say when someone says to you, gee, those floods in Townsville are terrible, aren't they? What is God doing? How do you answer that? Or when they tell you about the sick child, what do you say or offer to do? Or when they complain about real estate prices or ask you what you think of the latest movie or the latest scandal from a sports star, what do you say? Sometimes it takes courage to make the most of the opportunities that you have. Like when it's a close friend or family member, they say something and you hold back because you think, well, I might be risking a really important relationship if I speak, if I take up the opportunity. Or maybe the comment comes when there's a large group who's listening and you think, well, I'm really going to get in trouble if I say this. It's not just one person, it's going to be 20 people on my back. But do it anyway. Uh, Be opportunistic, says Paul. Make the most of every opportunity. Fifth, be gracious. Verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace. And that's a matter of wisdom as well, isn't it? Uh, It's better to keep the friend and lose the argument than it is to lose the friend and win the argument. Uh, We see that in Acts 17. There there were a number that said to Paul, we want to hear you again on this subject. That's always a good goal, isn't it, when you're talking to someone? But they go away thinking, yeah, I'm willing to think about that, talk about it some more. Much better than them going away thinking, oh, I never want to talk to that person again. Asking lots of questions and listening well are good ways of being gracious. People like to talk about what interests them and it's not just gracious to listen, it's smart and it gives you the right to speak if you've heard them. Uh, It actually helps you to speak as well if you know where they're coming from. Six, Paul says, season your conversation. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. What's a salty conversation? Well, depending what you're talking about, salty could mean a bad thing, but it could mean a good thing. Uh, To season your conversation with salt, I think, means means to make it interesting, to give it some flavour, add value to the conversation, move them from plain, boring, uh, run-of-the-mill things to topics that are bursting with life and flavour that interest people. Uh, that motivate them, uh, that awaken in them a hunger. Uh, Is it something Jesus was doing when he told the woman at the well about living water? Was that salt to the conversation? Do it in a way that's attractive, that people can catch a glimpse of something that they want to have, a hunger that they never even knew they had, someone they want to be, an experience they want to share. That's a salty conversation. I think the last phrase of Paul's description is the end result of the previous uh, six things. He says, then you will know how to answer everyone. Whatever comes up, 
in whatever situation, whatever someone says, you'll have a way to answer that fits. Something that's just right. Uh, The Greek says you'll know how to answer each one. Uh, There'll be a custom-made, bespoke answer for each person because there's no one approach, no one answer that'll be right for everybody. Christians are to be like the electrician who's up the power pole at the top of the ladder. He's got a full tool belt full of tools. There are things off hooks and filling up pockets, screwdrivers and tapes and pliers and connectors and wires. (coughs) He's up the ladder, he doesn't want to come down again, so whatever he needs is right there on his tool belt and that's what we are to be. Uh, We're to be equipped uh, to have an answer for each person we come across. Uh, We know how to answer them. Well, that's the theory. Let's see how Paul puts it into practice. Uh, Can he walk the talk or is he just talk? We're in a flip over to Acts 17, uh, back 20 pages or so, I guess. Paul's in Athens. He's got some time to kill while he waits for his companions. Athens, it's an amazing place even today in uh, Greece, as Hugo was able to point out. Uh, It's one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world. You'll see evidence for the incredible architecture and the history and the artworks. Except today, what we call works of art back then were idols that were worshipped. We might be amazed at the beauty of the statues, but Paul's reaction was something different. Uh, Verse 16, he was greatly distressed. (coughs) There were idols everywhere. Gods for every part of life. Gods for rain and sun, for luck, for war, for fertility and love, for protection and wealth. And it affects Paul. Paul is moved by compassion to speak. Verse 17, he goes to the synagogue first. That's home home base, home country. He reasons with the Jews and the Gentiles who are there. They're speaking about the same God. They're speaking from the background of the same scriptures. He always starts in the synagogue, whatever city he's in. It's not a bad starting place, but they're not really the ones who are serving those idols. And so he moves to the marketplace, right in the middle of town. It's where the people are. Maybe he finds a stool to stand on and begins to speak or maybe he just wanders around and chats to the shoppers and the shopkeepers but whatever he does, he does it. He's got time to kill, he engages in regular, natural, ordinary conversation. What's the equivalent of the marketplace for us? Well, it might be the Carnival of Cultures in Asheville Park once a year, that's where a lot of people are going to be. Maybe outside the council chambers on a Saturday morning as people walk past on the way to the station or the shops. Perhaps if you're a man, it might be the pub or the club or the gym. If you're a, uh, a woman, it might be in a kid's playgroup or at the tennis or at a hairdresser. And maybe it's on the sideline of your kid's sports team. It might be pushing the kids in the park, sitting in a doctor's waiting room. Maybe it's at the school gate waiting to pick up the kids or in a book club or a Lions club. If you want to do what Paul does, you need to be where the people are. Where are the people? We need to fill the places where we are with natural, God-soaked conversation. 
talking that's a lifestyle thing, not a diary thing that we plan. Yes, it should go in the calendar if we have to, but it should also happen spontaneously as we get to know the people around us. It needs to happen coming from you as individuals just as much as it does from us as a group. As Paul wrote in Colossians 4, make the most of every opportunity. Season your conversations with grace and salt and answer each person. That's what Paul's doing in Athens. It doesn't take long before people notice. Verse 18, he starts getting heckled. Uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. That's the other thing Athens is famous for. Idols and Greek philosophers. Aristotle, Plato. In this case, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Verse 21 sums up what Athens was like. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. (laughs) It's like one long episode of Seinfeld or Friends. Just hang around and talk about nothing. Sit and drink coffee and just chew over the latest trends in philosophy. Uh, And here, in Paul, they've found another new idea. Uh, And they both joined forces in ridiculing him. What's this babbler saying? But Paul seems to have a positive effect on at least some of them. Verse 19, he scores an invitation to the Areopagus. This was the ultimate compliment, really. Like being invited to address the CSIRO National Forum or maybe the National Press Club. Give us your best shot, they're saying. Make it as clear and well thought out as you can and we'll let you know what we think. Here's Paul's big chance. It's a bigger stage than the marketplace. It's like being upgraded from busking on a street corner to the main stage at the Opera House. So what's he going to do when he gets there? Well, just as he teaches in the theory, he's going to be clear. And to be clear, he has to be relevant and use common ground to communicate. And if you watch Paul in action, as he speaks at the Areopagus, that's exactly what he does. As he talks to a bunch of non-Jews, his message is very different from what he would say to Jews. To the Jews, there's a whole bunch of quotations from the Old Testament and he matches them up to prophecies for the Messiah That's the sort of sermon you can see in chapter 13. But here it's very different. There are a whole lot of Old Testament ideas, but there's no quotes from the Old Testament. Instead he quotes from two of their popular poets. We might quote from a Top 40 song or a movie. Uh, Verse 28, he quotes, For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a poet. Another poet wrote, We are God's offspring. And the only other thing Paul quotes is an inscription at the bottom of an altar in verse 23 to an unknown God. Now think about that for a moment. It's the first thing Paul says. We know when he first sees this city full of idols, he's distressed. It it cups him up. The, 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 The blindness and the foolishness of people But when he starts talking to the people, you'd never know that he's upset. He's gone around reading the inscriptions and thinking about it. He's looking for common ground. And when he starts to speak, rather than 
show he's upset, he compliments them. Men of Athens, he says, verse 22, I see that in every way you are very religious. They sure are religious, there's idols everywhere. And so Paul goes on and he quotes something he's seen that is the perfect bridge to walk across from his culture to their culture. The altar, which has an inscription on it. These Athenians were so worried that they might have missed out on some god or another that they make an extra idol to a god that they don't even know about, just in case. It's a bit like the American War Memorial in Washington DC. They have a tomb of the unknown soldier. The remains of an unknown soldier killed in battle who represents all the unknown soldiers. Except in America, a few years ago, there was a huge stir because it turned out that the US Army knew exactly who the unknown soldier was killed in the Vietnam War. But they hadn't bothered to tell his family. The unknown soldier, it was revealed, was known after all. And that's what Paul's doing here. The unknown God, well, he's actually been known all along. Verse 23, Paul says, For as I walked around and observed your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And that's exactly what he does. He says, Don't worship idols that you've made. Worship the real God who made you. They've built these beautiful temples, they've carved these incredible idols, but the point is they're all man-made. They've created gods in their own image, gods that will suit them. But Paul says the real God, the unknown God that you don't know about yet, he's not like that at all. He's the exact opposite. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands. He made you to suit him. It's not the other way round. You can't contain him. Just the opposite. God contains you. Verse 28, he, he quotes their own poet. You know this already. In him we live and move and have our being. We are God's offspring. He determines us. He is the source of us. We are defined because of him. It's not the other way round. That's what it's like when you make yourself an idol. You invent a God from your own imaginings. You figure out the sort of God that suits you, a comfortable God, a God who won't make too many demands, and then you carve it out the way you'd like. When someone says, I'd like to think that God is like this, that's what they're doing, they're making an idol. The trouble is, the real God The God that they don't know about is the God who made them to do what he wants. Verse 25, he goes on, He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He made us. He put us where he wanted us. He determines the times and places for us exactly the way he wants It's a very different picture from the tinny little gods of Athens, even if they looked golden and big and beautifully sculpted. He begins with common ground but then moves to 
differences that are quite uh, opposite. In verse 29, he sums it all up. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, he made us, designed us with incredible detail, we shouldn't think that God is gold or silver or stone at all. There's the differences. And then he moves to the application. Here's the sting. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, but now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now that's exactly the same message that Paul and the other apostles have been preaching all along, isn't it? Repent, whether it's to Jews or Gentiles. Turn back to the God who made you. It's the essence of the Christian message, but it's been said in a very different way. So that's a message I need to ask you, I guess, a question. Have you done that? Have you repented, turned back to the God who made you? Paul's message to the Athenians is a message for Australians as well. Are you serving a God that you've made yourself? Are you the centre of your world or is God the centre of your world? Because God has set a day when everything you've ever said or done will be judged with absolute justice and perfect insight. And Paul says that's going to happen by by Jesus himself, whom God has vindicated and appointed and seated as the judge by raising him from the dead. At the moment God is patient, God is putting up with ignorance, but one day his patience will run out. So be warned. Be warned. God has the day picked out. It's set just as everything else has been set by God, a day when you'll face the prospect of being treated by him the way you are treating him now. Either spent a life spent worshipping him or a life that's been spent worshipping the creation. And that's where Paul ends the speech with the challenge to repent. And, well, the usual thing happens. Some laugh, some say we want to hear from you again and keep, our, keep their options open, they want to hear more and then there are some who believe. It doesn't seem like it was hundreds but there were some in the midst of all those who heard Paul who believed. Now we don't go on the basis purely of results uh, when we determine whether his method was a good one or a bad one because when you're declaring a message about repentance and forgiveness and sin, people will reject you. They don't like to hear it. But there will also be people who believe because God is doing his work. And our job is to do our job, to leave the saving up to him, to leave the results up to him. Our job, as Paul has taught, is to be wise in the way we act towards outsiders to make the most of every opportunity, to season our conversation with grace and salt with the result of all of that that we may know how to answer each one. May God work out his purposes through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us 
to, to know your purposes, to walk with you, to recognise your hand over our lives and over our whole world. Help us to see the wisdom and the power in that. Help us to recognise too your patience, your forbearance, as well as your forgiveness. May your power over your sovereignty, over uh, your gospel, motivate us to proclaim uh, the life-giving words of Jesus to our friends at every opportunity. May we do this graciously, wisely, prayerfully, for your honour and glory. Amen.